Hello and welcome to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. It's lovely to have you back, or if this is your first time, it's lovely to welcome you. As always, our episode will have a normal format. First, there'll be the tale, then, after the tale, some discussion about some of the topics in the story, then the food in the story, and finally, our recipe. This week's story is A Sprig of Rosemary, a Catalan tale as collected in The Pink Fairy Book by Andrew Lang. So, are you listening comfortably? Then I'll begin. Once there was a man who made his daughter work very hard all day long. He sent her out in the woods one day to gather kindling, and as she was collecting leaves and twigs, she happened upon a rosemary plant. She decided it would brighten up her home and pulled it a sprig of it. But the plant resisted her efforts until she used all her strength and pulled up the entire plant, making her fall over onto the floor. Why did you come to steal my firewood? asked a voice. She turned to see a handsome young man standing by her and was so bewildered, partly from the fall, that she could only mumble a few words about her father sending her out to gather kindling. He leaned over and pulled her to her feet and bade her to follow him and led her through the opening made by the uprooted rosemary plant. They travelled underground, visiting about this and that, looking on all the spaces until they came to a splendid palace. Then he told her that he was lord of this place and that he would be pleased if she would marry him. Realising that her life would be much better than her former miserable existence and that this young lord was, you know, quite congenial, she agreed to his proposal and soon they were married. The lord had a housekeeper who gave the girl the keys to the house, as was the tradition, cautioning her, however, that she was never to use one particular key to open a chest. If she did it, it would be the ruination of them all. The girl promised, but the presence of the key tugged at her mind. One day she could just no longer resist the need to learn what was in the chest and she inserted the key and carefully lifted the lid. Inside she found a serpent's skin. She naturally did not know that her husband was a magician who used the skin for his sorcery. The sight of the skin made her feel ill but before she could close the chest the earth trembled, the palace vanished and she found herself in the middle of a field. By this time, she had fallen deeply in love with the young lord, and she told herself off for being so foolish. Seeing a rosemary bush nearby, she broke off a sprig and decided she would never rest until she had found her husband, given him the sprig, and asked his forgiveness for her foolishness. She set out, walking until she came to a small house. She asked if they could use a servant. She had all the skills, she said, and she was told that they would be happy for her to stay with them. However, her sadness became so obvious that her mistress asked her why she grieved. The girl told her what had happened and how she intended to search the world until she found her husband. The mistress of the house said, Well, there's no point wasting time here. You must go to the sun, the moon and the wind and ask him where he is. They go everywhere and they know what's happening all over the world. The girl set out again, walking until she came to the golden castle of the sun She knocked on the door, saying, "'Oh, son, I have come to ask you for your help. "'Through my own foolishness, I have lost my husband.' And she told him her story. The son could not tell her where to find her husband, but he did give her a nut, telling her only to open it when she was in great need. The girl was disappointed, but very polite, so she thanked him and left, searching for the castle of the moon. When she arrived, an old woman answered her knock, and the girl told her of her quest. The moon came out and listened to her story, though she had watched her at night and knew of her plight. She was also unable to tell her where to find her husband, 
but she gave her an almond to open when she owned, when she was in great need, and only when she was in great need. The girl was again disappointed, but she pocketed the nut and left in search of the wind, and after much walking came to his castle. She told him her story, and the wind really was sorry for her, but he couldn't help her either, except to give her a walnut to use when she was in great need. The wind seemed to be her last chance, and before this she'd been able to at least look forward to the next question she could ask, but now her disappointment completely overwhelmed her. She sat down and began to weep. The wind was so distressed that he told her he would set out and try to learn something that might help her. With a great bluster he departed, and in the blink of an eye he was back. I have learned something of great importance, he announced with glee. Your husband has been hidden in the palace of a king, who intends to marry him to his ill-tempered daughter tomorrow. He's under a spell that has made him forget his past. And you? Um, could you help me, dear wind? Would you do all you can to delay the wedding? Then perhaps I can rescue my dear husband. The wind whisked off to the palace, arriving obviously much faster than the girl. He blew into the room where the tailors prepared the wedding costumes. He scattered all the laces and the trims and the threads out through the windows. The tailors tried to recover them, but it was soon clear they would have to begin again as they danced away on the wind. The king decided his daughter would have to marry in whatever sort of dress could be pieced together, but the result was so dismal that even he agreed to delay the ceremony. Meanwhile, the girl had arrived at the castle the wind having given her enough time. Before knocking, she cracked the first nut that the sun had given her and drew out the most beautiful veil ever created. When the door was opened, she said, Ask the princess if she'd like this veil for her wedding. Upon seeing the veil, the princess was elated because hers had been destroyed by the wind's prank. She asked how much the girl wanted for the veil. And the girl tried to conjure up a sum, a huge one actually, but the princess was very happy to pay her the handsome sum. When the princess left, the girl crept open an almond, the one that the moon had given her, and drew out from it the most splendid petticoats you have ever seen. They were beautifully thin and beautifully sewn in so many layers. She knocked again and asked if the princess would like to buy her petticoats. As soon as the princess saw the petticoats, she couldn't deny herself. She asked what the girl wanted for them. The girl named an even more costly sum, but the princess was delighted to pay it for the petticoats, and paid and handed over the gold with no hesitation. When the princess had departed, the girl then cracked open her walnut that the wind had given her, and out came a dress of unsurpassed brilliance and beauty. She knocked at the door once again, inquiring as to whether the princess wished to buy this glorious dress. The princess was thrilled. It was even better than the dress she was going to have that the tailors had used to make her, and she asked the girl what her price was. This time, the girl didn't ask for gold. Instead, she said that she wanted to see the groom. Hmm. The princess was quite suspicious about this, and definitely didn't please her, but she really wanted that dress, and she decided it was an easy request to fulfil. So, the girl was led to the room where her husband was held. She found him sleeping and touched him, with a sprig of rosemary she still carried. The spell was instantly broken, and he woke and recognised her. He called for the king, telling him she was his true wife. The king was a little bit scared about this, because he had obviously kidnapped him, and didn't want to face any consequences. So, her husband and the girl went home, back to her home, where they were happy through the whole of their old age. And that, gentle listener, is the end of my tale. And I hope it pleased you. 
for it had no other purpose. Did you enjoy that? I loved it. It was nice to hear a variation of the tale that was just that little bit different. It's also given me the opportunity to revel in the history and folklore of rosemary, as well as treat you to one of my favourite recipes, which I learned from a now sadly closed restaurant. However, firstly, we really need to look at our story. This tale forms one of a type known on the Arne Thompson Uther Index as Search for the Lost Husband, ATU425, forming one of the subtypes of this tale, type 425A, the animal bright green. This doesn't sit quite right with me, as though it was a serpent skin our heroine found in the forbidden chest. We never really see him in serpent form anywhere in the story. I suppose the story does feel a little unformed, possibly in the translation from Catalan to English, or maybe just a story that hadn't quite reached its full potential before it was captured like a butterfly and pinned. When I adapted the tale, I was very tempted to embroider over those holes, but just about resisted in order to honour the story. You probably know the most famous of this tale type, east of the sun and west of the moon. And in an earlier episode, I explored this in the earliest known literary version of the tale, Pinto Smalto, from Tale of Tales by Jean-Baptiste Petit Basile. I also don't want to give too much away, but I have another tale from ACU425 in my next episode. I hope you'll find it an interesting comparison to this story. This version is a Catalan tale, an area of which I have very little experience. There are limited numbers of popular tales from the region that are available in English translation, and my Spanish is frankly poor, as you'll find out later in the episode. The one notable feature of this tale is that the husband in this instance is not enchanted into his animal shape. He wears it and puts it off any time he wishes. There is an enchantment that means all his treasures, castle and comforts disappear when his wife disobeys an instruction not to open a specific chest. Equally strangely, although she regains her husband's memory of her and they escape, to live a wonderful life together, the treasures and castle don't reappear. They return to her family home, and although happy, we aren't informed that the couple are particularly prosperous. It would seem that he has given up magic. There's also no ogress or witch or enchantress in this tale, just an unpleasant princess. I do feel a little bit sorry for her, in fact. Her father is so desperate to marry her off, he nearly insists on her marrying in rags. She isn't even rude or horrid to our heroine, paying her fairly for the items that were sold. Rosemary plays a big part in the tale, being both the reason for the heroine's original capture and the instrument by which she returns her now beloved's memory. Was there ever a better chance to use the quote from Hamlet? There's Rosemary. That's for remembrance. Pray you, love, remember. I certainly can't think of a better lead into talking about the wonders of Rosemary. We should start at the beginning with the history of the herb and how it got its name. The first mention of Rosemary is found on cuneiform stone tablets as early as 5000 BCE. After that, not much is known, except that Egyptians used it in their burial rituals. There's no further mention of it until the ancient Greeks and Romans, although obviously it existed in between. Rosemary is a fragrant evergreen shrub with leaves-like needles and is native to Asia and the Mediterranean. It often grows near the sea, which is how it got its name from the Latin Rosmarinus. Rosmarinus, literally Jew of the sea. Its form changed in English to rosemary, possibly connected to the similarity of the English words rose and mary. The Virgin Mary does come into our story a little later, if only briefly. So, how, I imagine you must be thinking, did it get to England and how does it survive in this cold climate? Well, it's pretty hardy and it survives down to minus 10 degrees Celsius, so that fixes the second problem. The first question is tricky to answer. There are a few schools of thought. Some think it came over with the Romans, others believe it returned with fighters from the Crusades. Alternatively, it's also suggested that the Emperor Charlemagne insisted on it being planted in all monastery gardens and farms in the 8th century. There's also written evidence of a letter from 1338 from Jean de Valois to Queen Philippa, 
which was sent with cuttings of the plant, amongst other herbs, praising its virtues. That original manuscript is in the British Museum. There begin to be references to rosemary and herbals following this time, and it became widely used. There's even a reference to it in the form of curry in 1425. That does sound pretty conclusive, doesn't it? But the truth is, it was probably a multitude of sources. It almost certainly came over with the Romans, as they used it extensively for culinary, medical and spiritual reasons. It was then allowed to die out, or became disused when they left, and then became reinvigorated through Charlemagne and then by the royal court. It's a very popular herb, and its use is prevalent throughout history in folklore, medicine, magic and food. Before we discuss some of these, I wish to issue a disclaimer. None of the following is a recommendation. Some of these uses could be considered dangerous to your health. Rosemary might be a natural product with many uses, but natural doesn't always mean good. Think arsenic. Anyway, to quote from Buffy, a vague disclaimer is nobody's friend, so always check with a qualified professional if you have any concerns. It's long been connected with improved concentration in memory. Greek students used to wear garlands around their heads for examinations, apparently. It's also renowned as a good headache remedy, either topically with essential oil or steeped in tea. The tea is considered a stimulant and good to take to increase liveliness. It was also made into lozenges and teas for the treatment of colds and coughs. Where rosemary is apparently a star isn't helping avoid the plague. It's a Korean ingredient in Four Thieves Vinegar. The story, one of several, is that during the Black Death, the original 14th century one, a group of thieves from Marseille who previously had worked as spice merchants were robbing the dead or the sick. When they were caught, they offered to exchange their secret recipe, which had allowed them to commit the robberies without catching the disease, in exchange for leniency. This vinegar always contained rosemary, as well as some other herb. In some versions, the thieves were still hanged instead of being burned to death. In others, they were allowed to go free. We don't really know if this happened, and if it did, we don't know if it was the herbs that helped or just a protective clothing. But all we do know is that people retain this belief that rosemary was effective against the plague and that burning rosemary and rosemary wood helped to protect against infection. In 1603, when bubonic plague killed 38,000 Londoners, demand was so high that the price increased from one shilling for an armful of branches to six shillings for a handful. To put that in perspective, 18 gallons of good ale cost three shillings and a whole pig, yes, a whole pig, just one shilling. Rosemary was also used in Hungary water, a variant of rosemary water. Queen Elizabeth of Hungary started using it to treat her rheumatism and gout at the age of 72. She said it was given to her by a hermit, and apparently it did the trick, and as she reportedly claimed, she was not only cured, but recovered my strength and appeared to all so remarkably beautiful that the King of Poland asked me in marriage. As he was 26 at the time, it was either amazingly effective or as an element of legend to this tale. The quote comes from a document published 275 years after she died, and she only lived for four years after she started the treatment that the hermit recommended, so I'll leave it up to you. Rosemary was also one of the ingredients in the original Eau de Cologne, which is one of the oldest perfumes still made today. As well as smelling good, it's also believed that looking at rosemary and washing your face in rosemary water kept you youthful. It was also used to wash hair, as it was thought to add shine to dark hair. It does actually darken hair alongside sage, Alice Fowler, in her A Modern Herbal, has a rinse for dark hair made from chopped rosemary, chopped sage and black tea, which she recommends keeping in the fridge to stop fermentation. Well, labelled, hopefully, but it is effective. According to Richard Focard in Plant Law, Legends and Lyrics, in an Italian, ancient Italian recipe, the flowers of rosemary, rue, sage, marjoram, fennel, quince are recommended for the preservation of youth. In Bologna, there's an old belief that the flowers of rosemary, if placed in contact with the skin, and especially with the heart, give gaiety and sprightliness. 
It's a good allusion to the fact that Rosemary also appears a lot in folklore and magic. So much say that I can't fit them all in. Firstly, we'll just pop the belief in that the Virgin Mary is thought to have changed the colour of rosemary flowers by drying her cloak on a rosemary bush whilst escaping with Jesus, in case I forget, and I promised to tell you earlier. It's a rare plant that appears at both weddings and funerals, but as Robert Herrick wrote, grow for two ends, it matters not at all, be it for my bridal or my burial. Rosemary was a star player in both ceremonies. It was often placed in coffins for remembrance by mourners or in the hands of the dead themselves. Dorothy Beauvais-Jones quoted Valmont Beaumont in his Histoire Naturelle as stating that when coffins were opened after several years, branches of rosemary that had been placed in the hands of the dead were found to have grown so that they covered the corpse. Some people even believed they stopped the body from decomposing. Rosemary has a happier association with weddings. It was used to help remember the wedding vows and rosemary was sometimes dipped into the cups of the bridal couple so they could toast each other. Rosemary was considered to promote faithfulness and a bride would often give her groom a sprig to hold on their wedding night. Dried rosemary was also adding to the wedding night bed linen. Wealthy couples often gave it as a wedding favour, dipped in gold and tied with ribbons. It also appeared in bridal wreaths to symbolise love, faithfulness, friendship and kind remembrance of the family that she would be leaving behind. Anne of Cleves even wore it at her wedding to Henry VIII. She didn't lose her head and remained friends with Henry even after the marriage was ended. Perhaps it brought her some luck. The connection to weddings also promoted its popularity as a love charm. During the Middle Ages, rosemary would be grown in several pots, each pot named with a potential lover. The answer would be the plant that grew the fastest and the strongest. Poppets would be stuffed with rosemary to attract a new lover. It was also said if a person tapped another with a sprig of rosemary with an open bloom, they would fall in love. There were also dates when rosemary could be used for divination of future marriage partners. Derbyshire girls used to put a sprig of rosemary and a crooked sixpence under their pillows at Halloween so that they should dream of their future husbands. Easter Saturday was also effective according to an 18th century chapbook. It said, if you lay a branch of rosemary under your head on Easter Eve, you will dream of the party you should enjoy. If you didn't enjoy sleeping on rosemary, you could place a plate of flour under a rosemary bush on Midsummer's Eve and your future husband's initials would be written in it. Or, according to James Halliwell, in his popular rhymes and nursery tales, on St Agnes Day, you should take a sprig of rosemary and another of thyme, sprinkle them thrice with water. In the evening, put one in each shoe, placing a shoe on each side of the bed, and when you retire to rest, say the following lines, and your future husband will appear visible to sight. St Agnes, that to lovers kind, come ease the trouble of my mind. Others believed that to see your true love in a dream, one should put rosemary under your pillow, and that no specific day was indicated. There was even a Spanish proverb that suggested that a dislike of rosemary was an indication of reluctance to love. An 18th century translation suggests that he passeth by the rosemary, and careth not to take a spray, for woman's love no care has he, nor shall he live for a... I think it rhymes, probably, if I pronounce it properly. But anyway, a slightly less romantic modern translation suggests that who goes through the rosemary and does not take from it has neither had loves nor does he wish for them. Rosemary was also used for protection from demons and bad influences and if planted in the garden, protected the house. Although you had to be careful with the size of the plant, as to quote the Treasury of Botany, there is a vulgar belief in Gloucestershire and other counties that rosemary will not grow well unless when the mistress is master. 
and so touchy are some of the laws of creation upon this point that we have more than once had reason to suspect them of privately injuring a growing rosemary in order to destroy this evidence of their want of authority. It was also used as a remedy against witchcraft. A remedy for illness caused by witchcraft, used and prescribed by the cunning man, was to put rosemary, balm and many gold flowers in a bag to the patient's breast as a charm, and to give them inwardly a decoction made of some of the same in a quart of ale and their own blood. It's taken from a deposition to these sizes in Leicester, 1717. In Spain, a sprig of rosemary was worn to protect against witchcraft, and in Portugal, it was believed that bad atmosphere created by marital quarrels could be exercised by burning rosemary in the house. Rosemary placed under the pillow is suggested also as a cure for nightmares and for promoting good sleep. Placing it beneath a bed was said to protect the occupant from many varieties of harm, and burning rosemary in the house is still said to purify a new home for its new occupants. Rosemary is also associated with fairies, particularly in Sicily, where it's believed that young fairies disguised as snakes lie hidden under its branches. It's also been reported that an old word for rosemary in rural Portugal is alcrim, which comes from elegrim, a Scandinavian word which signifies elfin plant. I haven't checked this, but it makes a charming story, so I'll leave it for you to research it or believe it. To move to more culinary matters, rosemary was said to reduce chronic drunkenness in Wales. That's the country, not big mammals. It was often added to beer casks as infusion to assist with that. It also had the added benefit of keeping the beer from souring for much longer. It was also widely believed a spoon made from rosemary wood would make whatever was eaten from it nutritious. When using rosemary in cooking, we associate rosemary now with more savoury dishes, particularly lamb, where it's considered helpful to the liver for digesting such a fatty meat. It's also been proven to contain compounds which reduce any carcinogenic effects of cooking at high heat over wood and charcoal. Rosemary used to be described in sweet dishes too. Pamela Michael in All Good Things Around Us describes some interesting sweet confections made with rosemary. These included a rosemary conserve for which she found recipes from the 16th and 17th centuries and which is described as looking and tasting almost exactly like honey. Another is a kind of complete compote of oranges flavoured with rosemary. For effects which are both decorative and edible, she cites crystallised rosemary flowers, small and fiddly to work with, but very pretty. Also, a medieval edible centrepiece called rosemary snow. A large branch or bush of rosemary was decorated with whisked cream, egg white and sugar, usually set in a loaf of bread. It's also divisive as an ingredient of paella, according to chefs in Valencia. It's used by half of those who are considered to make the real authentic dish. There's an even a wonderfully named website where you can find those restaurants that make authentic paella by the set of rules established by the founders, should you wish to follow that up. Wiki paella. I'm now considering a sort of pilgrimage to try the wonderful paellas and ask the restaurants the question for my own personal survey. And although our original story is Spanish, I wasn't going to give you a recipe for paella, it's a Catalan story for a start, not a Valencian one. Also, I prefer to leave it to the experts. And I'm not an expert in Spanish cooking, so I thought you might prefer a recipe for a dish that I know works, as I've made it many times. It was given to me by a chef at an Italian restaurant that has sadly closed down. So at least it's from a Mediterranean country. This recipe is for roasted potatoes with garlic and rosemary. Wait, 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 please come back. This is exactly like the perfect potatoes you get in little Italian trattorias. 
It's a lot of faff, but worth it for every crispy, then melting bite of garlic and rosemary scented potatoes. It's like travelling to a gorgeous, hot Mediterranean country without leaving, well, wherever it is you are at the moment. It has three major steps. First, you boil the potatoes, then you fry the potatoes with some of the wonderful ingredients, and then you finish them off in the oven, a crisp oven. But what you get is that beautifully crisp, and I mean really crisp outside, and then a completely melting middle with those wonderful scents picked up from the rosemary and also from the garlic. It's a vegetarian, in fact, actually a vegan recipe, so it's suitable for most people. And if I'm honest, they go with everything. And I think that brings us to the end of this week's topic. As always, the recipe will be in the show notes and it's also on my website, hestiaskitchen.co.uk, should you like to go and have a look at it. I'd also like to remind you that if you're listening to this when it comes out, I also have bonus episodes at the moment from a wonderful set of interviews I did with some wonderful storytellers. There isn't a recipe in those ones, but we do talk about food and stories and about how those things break down barriers between people and bring us together. There'll be a bonus recipe that'll come out at the same time as this one. And if you subscribe, you'll get it automatically. There'll also be another bonus episode um, next week. And then the following week, there'll be the final interview bonus episode plus our next normal episode. As always, if you'd like to read more about some of the things I've talked about on this episode, there'll be links to further reading in the show notes, as well as links to my social media if you'd like to get in touch about the podcast. I'm on at fairytalesfood on Twitter and Instagram. And finally, one reminder that if you'd like to leave a review or some stars, for example, five, that's a good number, then you can on wherever it is you get your podcast from. It's a great way to help other people find the podcast. And with that, I'll leave you. And thanks for listening to this episode of Folklore, Food and Fairy Tales. <laughs>